Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Lorraine McKeon. Lorraine is a graduate from the King's MFA program in creative nonfiction and has worked as an editor with this magazine, Toronto Life, and The Walrus. Now the deputy editor at Reader's Digest, Lorraine hasn't shied away from difficult topics in her writing, tackling issues like the prison system, sexual assault, human trafficking, and of course, feminism. Her first book, F-Bomb, Dispatches from the War on Feminism, was nominated for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize. And her latest book, No More Nice Girls, Gender, Power, and Why It's Time to Stop Playing by the Rules, explores how the myth of the nice girl has driven women to certain modes of behavior in settings where structural barriers will only change if we respond more aggressively. Today, Lorraine joins us to talk about writing, editing, and the work of putting big research projects into book form. Hi, Lorraine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I'm going to fangirl for a second (laughs) and say that um, my first real sort of introduction to you, I mean, we met at King's in, I believe, the summer of 2015. We overlapped Mm -hmm. uh, doing our degrees there and you were a year ahead of me. And I knew who you were and I'd heard you read and was, you know, really amazed and impressed with your work. But then I read this essay you'd written for Hazlitt um, called No Women Scorned or No Woman Scorned, I guess. And some of my colleagues in that in my year at King's read it at the same time. And then we saw you in the elevator at the winter session in Toronto that King's was running. And we all just saw you step in the elevator and kind of went silent. And what someone said, I loved your essay. <laughs> and then you left the elevator. and We were like, wow, it was her. <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking. Well, that's incredible. I had no idea. So <laughs> I'm very honored and and charmed by that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And since the, since your graduation, which was I guess 2016, yes, it's hard to even remember now. But that, that seems right. I know that year seemed hopeful at that point in time. You've written two books since then and been incredible with your editing, moving between. Uh, the Walrus, and now Reader's Digest. So it's a real career, I think, that uh, many of us admire um, who've come through the King's program, but also just writers across Canada watching the way you've uncovered difficult subjects and talked about really important things, especially related to feminism, but also worked really hard as an editor and put out some incredible material at those publications. So I thought maybe we could start with just your entry into the world of journalism and writing. Maybe you could tell us a bit about how you got into the world and and take us through a bit of your career. Sure. And thank you for that sort of summary. It's funny when you're in it and you're writing and you know and you're just working and working and working. Sometimes you don't always pause to think back about just how much you've done, how far you've gone. Um, so yeah, I started uh, journalism school at Ryerson where I did my undergrad and graduated in 2007. And from there, did a few internships and uh, left Toronto to go work as a journalist in Yellowknife which is where I really truly started uh, my journalism career and stayed up there for three and a half, almost four years. And it was just an amazing lesson in learning how to be a journalist and talking to people and, you know, meeting people and uh, especially meeting people who might be quite different from you and might have different ways of life and viewpoint. And from there, I finally uh, got tired of the cold and (laughs) came back to uh, Toronto and worked at uh, this magazine as editor for five years. And that that had always been a dream of mine. You know, that was the ultimate place that I wanted to be when I was in high school, when I first got into journalism and magazines, you know, and read the issues and, you know, the the stacks of my high school library. And uh, so this was also, you know, just an incredible place to be. It has such a history in Canada and it's truly independent and you can take risks and publish, you know, the type of journalism that maybe you can't get away with publishing uh, with a magazine that relies on advertising, you know, and advertisers and companies, you know, and stuff like that to fund it. So, 
yeah, and that's that's really where I kicked off. And from there, you know, I met people. I started freelancing. Took some time off to go to Kings. Was editing this while I was at Kings for a year, and that was a super fun time. <laughs> Very busy. <laughs> And, uh, you know, then then eventually uh, took a year off to finish my first book, F-Bomb. You know, just took off from there, ended up at The Walrus, uh, which is another amazing magazine, and uh, recently left, which is very bittersweet because they are, The Walrus is full of smart people doing very smart journalism. But I had a great opportunity to go to Reader's Digest, and that's where I'm at now. Wow. Okay. So you're talking about this as though it was a very smooth path. I ended up here and landed there. (laughs) Uh, But I imagine it wasn't all the way along. I mean, I have sort of two questions that's been out of that. One is, what on earth high school did you go to that introduced you to this magazine? Because I would have loved to go to that high school. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I went to Ajax High School, which is a large suburb now of Toronto. Um, At the time, it was quite a bit smaller. And I didn't realize how lucky I was because we had courses, special courses that I didn't realize that not every high school was able to teach, you know, so we had a gender studies course in my high school. Wow. Uh, we had a course that I took with, that was the history of genocide. You know, we had some very uh, socially progressive, like university level courses in my high school. And I just had no idea that not every high school in Ontario or Canada were was offering those same types of courses. And our library was stacked (laughs) with copies of this magazine. You know, I still remember the first one that I picked out. I have it now, you know, as my parting gift, they framed it and gave it to me (laughs) when I left. So, you know, I have it framed in my apartment along with the, the last issue that I did at the magazine. And I think, you know, like it wasn't a smooth path. That's for sure. I don't think any journalism career is entirely smooth, but it's been an incredibly fulfilling one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just alone going from writing to editing is a path perhaps many writers don't envision for themselves. So I'm I'm wondering, was it something in Yellowknife and your work that you were doing there that introduced you to the possibility of editing? Or was it actually something that, that goes back to that time reading this magazine in, in high school? Yeah, when I was in Yellowknife, I started out as a beat reporter, you know, covering City Hall. And then I ended up covering courts, so crime and courts. And while I was doing that, I found a story uh, that I pitched this magazine and I wrote for them. And I had done my internship there. And, you know, I'd always had this love affair with the magazine and they had a section editor spot open and I pounced on it. (laughs) And, you know, uh, before I became editor in chief, which is what I was eventually, I worked um, as sort of our front section editor for a few years um, from Yellowknife. And it was very neat. Uh, And then eventually I moved from the newspaper to a magazine that is located in Yellowknife called Up Here Magazine. Mm-hmm. And that was this first editor job that I had. And I did that in this magazine sort of at the same time. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible and, and hard to do, right? When you're trying to refine your own writing to pull yourself back out of that and start thinking about the way other people write. It's both, I think, beneficial, but also a bit of a mind scramble to be going back and forth between different styles. So I guess with that in mind, I'm curious how you've approached these different publications because they all have very different aspirations and audiences and by extension, writers so you're kind of facilitating those relationships and the connection between the writer and the audience in in different ways so as you moved into your editing work how have you approached uh those differences between those three publications you know i think that when i was younger so when i started um editing at this i was 25 and then i became editor of the magazine at 27 And I think that, you know, it's interesting that you say it's difficult to do when you're, you know, just crafting your own voice and figuring out what that is and what that looks like. Because I do think that if there were one thing that I could tell my younger editor self, it would be 
to just get out of the way a little bit more because I, you know, and I see this in, uh, you know, some of the younger editors that I mentor and that I work with that are super talented and brilliant. Um, but, you know, there is that tendency when you're younger and you're a new editor to try and impose yourself. Mm-hmm. or to impose your voice in the pieces that you're editing. You know, you you might tend to over edit um, or to think, well, I would say it this way. And maybe <laughs> instead of, you know, helping um, the writer become the best writer they can be for your magazine, you know, you're trying to just take over <laughs> a little bit. Right. So I think that, you know, that was difficult in the beginning. And I think over the years, what I have learned is that, you know, as an editor, it's my responsibility to help bring out your voice and your reporting and your vision for the magazine or for your piece. But at the same time, you know, I am acting as, you know, the reader of the magazine. I'm acting as sort of the gatekeeper a little bit of um, the, the brand and knowing what our readers expect. So, the way I kind of think of it is that the writer knows the story best and I tend to know the publication best. And when a piece works out really well, you know, you're, you're bringing those things together and those goals together and um, figuring out how to tell the best story that you can within the pages that will, you know, inspire readers, challenge them, spark new ideas, um, push them a little bit too. And I think, you know, that, is your job as an editor. And if once you think of it that way, it doesn't matter what publication it is because you're just making really good journalism. Hmm, That's a nice way to think about it. It feels like a real art form, the way you put it there. Not that I ever thought of it any differently, but just the aspirations are so kind of noble, right? It's all about everybody positioning themselves in a way to help each other and, and create the best art that they possibly can. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I think that you should never be afraid of your editor. <laughs> and I think, you know, it, yeah. it's hard to remind yourself that as a writer, you know, because I wear both hats. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you can get disgruntled or feel cranky or feel like the editor is pushing you in a direction that maybe doesn't feel right. And, you know, sometimes editors do need to be told, hey, you're not getting it. But I think most of the time the editor is just stepping in as the reader Mm-hmm. and um, trying to find the best story for the reader. And they want your story to shine and your voice to shine just as much as you do. Right. Though I'm curious, um, as you've kind of, you know, fostered your own writing voice over the last, um, or over this period of your editing career, there must have been like moments of contemplation or reflection, especially when you are writing longer forms, uh, you know, bigger books, and you have a longer term relationship with your editor. How did you manage to pull yourself out of that uh, writer's um, way of being in the world and approaching your work and and flip over to how your editor was thinking? And, and how do you think um, that relationship benefited from your own work as as being an editor? I think that or I hope that you know as a writer I really try and be flexible if something isn't working you know if an editor tells me this section is not working you know whether it's that it's not well argued um, or it feels like it's in the wrong structural place um, or it's clunky or it's maybe just boring you know I think that you know having been an editor for the same amount of time basically that I've been a writer is knowing and learning that if someone is saying that you know or flagging that um, it's not because that you know they're trying to be mean or it's not because you suck you know and everything you've ever written is terrible you know what they're trying to do is help you tell the story better so I think Mm -hmm. that you know the thing that I've learned on both ends is you know as an editor to be really respectful Mm -hmm. of the work that someone has put into a piece but you know as a writer to respect the process too and to know that a first draft is just a first draft and there's something kind of beautiful about that um, because that means that you don't have to get it right the first time you know you do have this opportunity to work with someone who cares about your work just as much as you do um, to get it right yeah that's interesting because as you're talking I'm thinking you've written about such 
intimate, personal, and also politically charged things and your passion for the subjects you write about and your your rage sometimes, you know, really comes through at the same time that you're trying to balance statistics and and um, policy decisions and and really factual fact fact based reporting. Um, so that must create some challenges sometimes, especially when you're talking about those more personal moments or those things that really, really upset you where you hand it over to the editor and they say, well, you know, <laughs> let's think about doing it this way. And I, I bring this up not to belabor the subject necessarily, but because I think, you know, so many of our listeners are going to be writers who are perhaps approaching their editors with with quite um, sensitive content sometimes. And, you know, in the realm of nonfiction, especially you're having to balance that out with really solid research. Um so is that the case that every once in a while you would put something in and and it would be very close to your heart and you would, you know, face a perhaps substantial structural changes or big things you didn't think you could take on as a writer in that situation? I think that when you're writing something that's personal and maybe it involves pain, trauma, anything like that, um the best thing that can happen if some if it's not working on the page um, as an editor or a writer is to have a phone call. You know, and I think mm. we sometimes do forget that, that, you know, you can pick up the phone, that it doesn't have to be an email. And I think, you know, the, the best conversations and, you know, tricky editing sort of decisions that, you know, that I've had to make, or, you know, as you try and go through that very like fraught, maybe thorny path of either editing something that is very sensitive and saying it's not working for whatever reason, or, you know, being a writer and hearing that it's not working, the best thing to do is have a phone call. Because I think that when, you know, when it is something that is so essential to someone's experience, um, you know, that is such a deep part of them that, you know, e email doesn't necessarily work or leaving, you know, a note and track changes isn't really good enough. <laughs> so I think that, you know, when you when you approach that, it's, it's all about the approach of it and remembering that, you know, we're sharing a human experience. We're sharing it so that hopefully your human experience can touch and illuminate and, you know, make someone else find their way through this dark time. And I think we just have to remember that when we're editing mm -hmm. and when we're looking at something. So I would say, you know, certainly I've worked with editors that maybe don't know that, you know, there was, there was a time where we all wanted to hear, this sounds horrible, but, you know, I think there was a time where we all were like, I want to, I want to hear about a me too story. I want to hear about mm -hmm. sexual assault. I want to hear this. And you know, I worked with writers, I was, or, or sorry, I worked with editors, I was approached by some editors during that time that, you know, would say things like, well, you wrote this about your rape experience here, can you just put that in here now? And like, maybe you could, <laughs> you know, maybe you can just add that. So, you know, stuff like that is jarring. And I think, you know, yeah. that's when you feel like maybe someone doesn't have the best interest in telling your story, they just want, right. um, you know, to check off a box. So I think that remembering that as an editor, you know, has, mm. you know, has made me be like, hey, let's get on the phone if something's not working. Let's talk this through. And, you know, because there's always a reason why it's not coming out, right? You know, it's hard. It's difficult mm -hmm. stuff to write about this stuff. And sometimes maybe you're just exhausted and you don't want to tell, you know, the same details over and over again about your trauma. Maybe, um, you know, you moved on and that doesn't stick with you anymore. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you just couldn't get it on the page because it is so difficult. And I think, you know, what I've learned is just to, you know, realize that these are people's real experiences that they're sharing and to give them, you know, the courtesy and respect of taking the time and the care with them that I think those stories deserve. Hmm. Do you think there's a, a period of time necessary between experiencing some form of trauma or grief and then trying to write about it? Do you think that some distance is required? I think it depends um, for everybody, you know, what they're, when they're ready. For me, I mean, it took 15 years before I was able to write about it and share it with somebody. And I think that 
and even then it was difficult. You know, it wasn't like I had created so much space between it that I was suddenly, it was fine and it was easy. And it was just about writing about anything else. Mm -hmm. Not that it's ever really easy (laughs) because I tend to pick very deep and um, complex subjects. But I think that, you know, as an editor, sometimes you do have to ask if someone's ready. And I've had really great stories um, that I think would have resonated with audiences, you know, that are about trauma. And, you know, I've talked with writers on the phone, and we've decided maybe they're not ready to share it. And I think that that is the responsible thing to do, you know, as an editor, you need to be able to say to someone, you know, if we do this, you're going to have to talk about this horrible moment in your life. And then you're going to have to be able to answer questions about it. And, you know, as kind and as respectful as I will try and be, some of those questions will be tough and it might have to go through fact checking. And this is what this is going to look like. And that's going to be tough too. And then people are going to read it. And, you know, this is, you know, are you prepared for what this could look like? And I think that um, we owe it to our writers to have those honest conversations with them to see if they are ready. Um, Because, you know, maybe they're not, but they'll be ready and they'll come back to you in, you know, a year or two years, five years. Mm -hmm. We often get told, you know, especially in in writing classes that writing is not therapy, but I, I don't. I kind of take issue with that because I think sometimes it can really help you sort through an experience in your mind. And um, even if it doesn't get published, just putting something into sentence form can help you articulate, uh, as you say, those very complex feelings about very difficult um, moments in your life. I'm curious, just sort of along these lines, if either your editing or your writing work Uh, and especially the combination of the two, presented a kind of craft problem that, uh, or an ongoing craft problem that you like to solve? Do you have a a good example of something that was particularly challenging? It's interesting. I mean, when I started my journalism career, um, I did not write about myself at all, like at all. And when I started at King's, One of the things that the mentor said to me at the time was, you want to write this book that, you know, is about anti-feminism and, you know, the rising, the rise of anti-feminism, but it also has uh, personal journalism aspects to it. And like, can you do that? You've never done that, which um, is so interesting now because a lot of people have found my work through my essays and through the personal journalism. So I think, you know, for a while... I really had this idea that journalists do not write about themselves. They do not infuse themselves into a subject. Um, You can't be vulnerable um, on the page. And, you know, you kind of have to be maybe this caricature that we think of when we think of journalists. And I think, you know, for me, I did, it was, you know, writing about myself and um, trying to communicate my experiences um, in a way that would resonate with someone um, or that would just make sense, Um, you know, that you wouldn't read and it wouldn't sound, um, you know, when I was younger, I had like a live journal page, which maybe Mm. a lot of people don't remember. (laughs) I do. (laughs) You know, that wouldn't sound just like, you know, a, a, a live journal, like confessional. So I think, you know, for me, it was a huge craft problem or, you know, challenge um, to sit down and think, you know, can I do this? Can I write about myself? Um, Can I go there? Can I go deeply enough um, to do that? And it was hard, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. it took a lot of drafts and, you know, to to get over it, you know, I really, um, I did a lot of it, the first drafts of that at King's with, you know, fellow students who would read and, and uh, offer feedback on my work and that very safe and, you know, constructive environment. And that helped a lot. And then I just read so many memoirs and, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you know, just watched and saw how other people did it and how they um, approached and how, you know, it wasn't always a straight line when you write about yourself and it doesn't always have to be, um, 
loaded with stats, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know and, and all this sort of stuff. So I think, you know, that, um, and I'm still learning how to do that, I think. Um, it still is difficult for me sometimes to sort of uh, drop that researcher, uh, journalist sort of mindset and really dig deep and to infuse myself, um, whether it's through an essay or whether it's, you know, in a book or whatever it might be to do that. It's still, it, it's very difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. And especially if you've gone through a formal journalism education, do you think that, um, so you said you graduated in 2007, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the approach to teaching journalism has changed at all in response to the kind of market power that the memoir has right now and, and this more kind of first person oriented uh, reporting that's going on? Yeah, I, th- I think it has changed. And I think, you know, part of that is, you know, the popularity of the form, yes. But I think it's also, you know, we're starting to realize the sort of rigid boundaries that we put on journalism really left a lot of voices and experiences out. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are starting to you know, really work toward rectifying that by allowing more voices and more styles in. And I think that, you know, when we ask, and as we should, and, you know, we open the door to diverse voices, which we absolutely need to do in the industry, um, we also have to take care as editors and as, you know, people that are publishing this, not to um, force fit those voices into that traditional journalistic style. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that that is also what is changing is that we are, we are allowing and valuing different types of storytelling and different types of what someone might consider to be nonfiction. Um, and that we absolutely need to do those things because we can't say, we want more Indigenous voices, we want more Black voices, but we want you to write in this rigid, very, you know, white, established way that we think of as journalism. Mm -hmm. And male, often, too, you know, like, so I think that, you know, as we blow that up, (laughs) as we blow up, you know, this sort of historical white male approach to journalism and what makes journalism and what makes serious writing as we blow that up, we will see um, different types of form and craft and first person journalism, you know, has been typically dismissed as, you know, confessional and feminism or feminine and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing that, you know, that's just, that's just kind of BS (laughs) that doesn't, that doesn't really (laughs) hold anymore. And that um, there is value in different types of storytelling and there's incredible value in different types of voices. Well, yeah, I, I really like that idea. And, and I sort of like the way you foregrounded that in your most uh, recent book. Um, the idea that if we if we sort of shift focus away from, say, in the case of the Me Too movement, uh, you know, away from the scandal and the kind of cancel culture surrounding somebody who's been called out or found to be guilty of, of criminal, criminal activity, like... Um, you know, instead of foregrounding that, we actually pay attention to the survivors and we talk to them about their experience and we understand what it's like to be human in that body going through that kind of um, uh, moment. So uh, springboarding from that, I think uh, what's really interesting about your latest book is the way you're trying to reorient language so that we get the experiences of people we don't normally hear from um, being foregrounded in, say, discuss- broader discussions of big issues like feminism. So how do you think language can be deployed and effective in making some of those bigger changes? I think that, I mean, I'm a writer and an editor, so obviously I will say, you know, that language is incredibly important. <laughs> but I do think sure. <laughs> uh, that it has power and that we don't often, um, you know, we can, it can get wrapped up in politics in a way that isn't always productive Mm -hmm. or that can actually be quite damaging. But I think that, you know, as writers and especially as writers of books where, you know, you're not, it was such an incredible thing for me to learn when I wrote my first book that, you know, I didn't have to fit a magazine style, you know, I got to decide (laughs) what the style was, you know, and what the style guide was, you know, so to speak. So I think, 
you know, that was the moment where I was like, oh, wait, like, this is my responsibility now. And I can be intentional in a way that is very much my choice, you know, that is very deliberate. So when I set out to write No More Nice Girls, I thought a lot about language and, you know, how I would use it and the power in it and what it meant. And, you know, for me, that meant, um, you know, shifting to not describing, you know, what uh, people looked like, you know, that was that was one of the things right. that I decided to do. And I think, you know, whether or not I would do that for the next the next book, you know, I don't know. But I think for for this book, you know, when you're talking about power and power imbalances, it struck me suddenly that the traditional way of describing women who are who are talking about very complex things or politics or science or anything like that, you know, to talk about uh, what they're wearing or the color of their hair felt kind of silly mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And, you know, <laughs> like it didn't have a place in 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 a book that was talking about power structures and new ways of doing things and new ways of looking at things. Um, so it can be something like that. It can be something as simple as saying all genders, um, you know, which I think... Mm-hmm is also changing uh, the, you know, mindsets and the way that we accept things and things that we, you know, think of as just normal, everyday, common language. So I think that all of those are important. And when we talk about, you know, and, and they might seem small, but they feed into larger ideas of, you know, who is important in Me Too, who's being left out of the conversation, Um you know, how do we talk about survivors? You know, what does that look like? And of course, language is the, you know, the structure for all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up the absence of physical descriptions, because I realized I didn't notice that. And yet when I do see it in writing, it just drives me crazy, because it's always, you know, explaining women rather than mm-hmm. men, right? There's, you know, this incredible vocabulary for talking about how women look, and and uh, certainly we don't have that to the same degree for for men. So it's really interesting because that was something that I just kind of cruised through in your book and and didn't notice. But what I did notice is you really carefully balance sort of a an a rage filled voice with a very conversational one. And I think that is such a hard balance to strike. You know, every once in a while you do drop an F-bomb or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, some other word that probably shouldn't be in a a serious text, but needs to be because you're trying to convey these ideas in a very conversational way and also make your voice very clear. Um, So do you feel like that when you have those moments, especially when you're more conversational, is that something that's now become a bit more natural for you that you're writing almost like you talk or or is it still a bit of a struggle to get away from your journalistic training how has that kind of flipped for you if it has it really depends um it's interesting because I don't actually swear a lot in common conversation (laughs) you know but I think that it just comes out when you're writing about these incredible (laughs) frustrating enraging things that do seem so unfair and um sometimes you know, eloquence does go out the window and, and an yeah. F-bomb comes in instead. <laughs> and I think that, you know, it when you're writing about things that can seem so abstract sometimes or that can seem, um, you know, that do run the very real danger of seeming too dry or, um, you know, somewhere over there, as opposed to something that I'm experiencing every day in my in my common, you know, everyday life, that mm-hmm. having a conversational tone kind of cuts through a lot of that. And I think that, you know, when you're reading a book about feminism, and when I read, you know, when I thought about my favorite books about feminism, or other very like serious social issues, that what resonated often was when it did feel like you were just having a conversation with someone um, when it when it was mm-hmm. funny sometimes you know when when yeah, you could have yeah. those moments of being angry but then also have those moments of just laughing at how absurd you know everything feels mm-hmm. sometimes so I think that that is a voice that I it took a while to get there <laughs> you know it took a while um, 
to figure out how to um or just to have the the courage to be like oh okay I can drop an f-bomb on the page you know I can (laughs) you know I can do this I can make a joke it does it it does belong in here you know to to find that voice took a while because you know you also want to be authoritative and you do want people to take you seriously and you do want um readers to understand the weight of what you're saying uh and that voice is not a voice that I tend to um use when I'm writing for magazines Mm -hmm. mostly because you know it's different you know your audience might be different or you know the drive of the magazine or the mandate of the magazine might be different and I think but certainly it's the voice that comes out whenever I talk about feminism. And there are, there are many reasons about that. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are just because there's just so much to um, be angry and incredulous about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so say, for example, your discussion of men's rights groups, you know, is just a, a kind of, I imagine a, a pretty horrifying research path to have to go down and then to, you know, kind of um, collate that information and and get it into chapter form is emotionally draining. Um, But then let's say if you were to take some of that material and go to one of the um, bigger magazines you write for, do you feel that changing your language, like part of that is also about thinking about who, you know, potential trolls who are then going to be disruptive somehow or perhaps harass you because you've brought that information to light and come at it from a feminist perspective? Like, is that part of your language choices? When I'm reporting, so even in these books, and there was um, a there was a section of F-bomb that talked about female men's rights activists um, that was printed in The Walrus, um, pretty, pretty much as it, as it was. And I think you know, that I am very intentional when I'm in those parts of the book to not really insert myself as much. I think that kind of what the beauty of a book is, is that it can, you know, shift in tone. And we see this in books that we read all the time, where, you know, books, you know, one section of the book will be straight reporting, and then you shift into another section of the book that's analysis. And as a journalist, you know, as a writer, I feel very comfortable in analyzing and criticizing the ideas that are presented um, and the trends uh, that are presented in the men's rights movement or, you know, in the anti-feminist movement. But I don't think and I would never disparage a, a source, you know, as, as I'm reporting what they say, like, I just, I just, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, you know, I think that even someone you don't agree with, even someone that's putting forward toxic ideas, I can't imagine on the page quoting them and being like, what an idiot, you know, in the next, sure. you know, <laughs> the next sentence. So I think that, you know, what, and, and I also don't think it's credible. Like, I don't think that's effective. I right. think like to be effective, you have to present these ideas and then you have to analyze, like present the analysis and show why those ideas are so destructive and, you know, why they are so dangerous and why they're, um, where the holes are. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it just depends on, it's this very, responsible line that you have to walk as a journalist. So I think, you know, that's the first part. As for the trolls, um, I get trolled all the time. (laughs) And I I think, you know, I don't let that define or influence what I'm going to write. I think what I do think about, even when I'm talking to people that I don't agree with, whose ideas that I find, you know, repugnant, (laughs) that I think that are dangerous, I do think about um, challenging them, but being respectful. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that is kind of what holds me. And then, you know, it it could still come out and they could still um, yell at me or, you know, say that I'm a horrible feminist or whatever. Um, but I'm not really on social media. And there's a reason for that. And that reason <laughs> is that um, I just don't think that it's a useful uh, place for me to be. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to take a, a turn here for a second because you keep bringing up um, – 
books in different uh, um, subjects that have come up. And, and I'm just curious if any books have really stuck with you in either the research you've done or just in thinking about your voice and shaping your voice. You mentioned you've read a whole bunch of memoirs um, and, uh, and also in developing your conversational voice that some books really um, hit you as being effective. So do any come to mind just offhand as great craft books for you? I wouldn't necessarily say that this is a craft book, although I do think it was very well done. But there's a book that I read when I was at King's called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. And it's by Peggy Ornstein. And it's actually um, like a parenting book, but it's a feminist book as well. And it was sort of like a, a light bulb moment for me when I read it because it's incredibly funny. And I didn't think that feminist feminist books could be funny. Like I just, you know, I just <laughs> thought that they were always, you know, very academic, very serious, uh, biting, scathing, but not, you know, um, they, they didn't make jokes. And, you know, that was mm-hmm. the moment. And then I read everything else and I read everything else that she's ever written because, and I didn't, you know, want to sound like her but there it was this moment where I was like wow you can talk about serious things and you can also you know make fun of yourself you can poke fun at um the research you can poke fun at this you can have these moments of levity to balance these very serious things so I think you know for me that book has always stuck with me and I've reread it many times just because it was the first glimpse that I had at what was possible. And, you know, and I think uh, Mary Roach, who's a science writer, is also a very mm-hmm. good example of that. Um, her books are also heavily researched, very well reported, beautifully written, but they're also funny. You know, and I think that she is another great example of how you can be conversational or, you know, you can pick up a book and it can sound um, like someone's just talking to you. And I think, you know, books like that do stick with me. And I like to read so many different things. You know, and I like to read, you know, complex, um, beautiful, lyrical books where, you know, we're talking about um, the sunset or, you know, the Saskatchewan Plains for paragraphs. And I like to read that stuff too. But I think you know, that the lessons that I've learned from books are, have been those books where um, you realize that you've just understood a really difficult concept or you've laughed out loud, you know, and that you've been entertained um, as well as informed. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately our biggest challenge as writers, yeah, to entertain people, even with the darkest material we're working with. Um, how, do we, how do we make them feel, right, and make them want to come back to us? Yeah, and that's that's difficult. I had some people tell me that they picked up my most recent book, uh, No More Nice Girls, and they took it with them to the beach. And I was like, are you sure you want to do that? And they were like, no, no, it's good. It's good. Right? You know, I think that's like the ultimate test for me is that someone will take a very yeah. serious book about feminism and gender and power that has a bajillion footnotes, and they're going to read it on the beach and finish it. You know, I think that yeah. is kind of... Um, like a, a goal for me and for any book that I want to, <laughs> no that I will write next. Yeah. Yeah. And the best criticism you can get, right? They're the best review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those footnotes uh, and just get into your research process a little bit. Um, with, so with your first two books, they're very in-depth. There's a, There are a lot of footnotes in there. Um, and I just am curious about your process more than anything when you first conceive of the book how do you then begin the research process and then how do you start to collect and manage that data and distill it down into narrative form um it's a process (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) um i have spreadsheets um and (laughs) then i also have you know folders with everything labeled and organized and all that sort of stuff but i think that you know when you're writing about feminism, the biggest critique that you get when you're writing about women's issues, when you're writing about, you know, 
um, for, you know, authors that are writing about racism, if you're writing about uh, poverty, you know, anything that you're writing about that is not considered part of the dominant narrative, people like to poke holes in it by saying it's just anecdotal. Sure. And I think that, you know, we need those anecdotal real people (laughs) to Mm -hmm. make a story come to life. You know, those are essential voices and experiences are what is interesting. And what is when you're talking, I I often tend to explain it, you know, as they're like the cake of a story and all those researches are are all the research is like the carrot, like the healthy stuff that you have to eat. (laughs) But I think that, you know, the the cake is important and you need to find those voices and you need to think about, you know, for me, um, also making sure that those voices um, are diverse and that there are people who don't have the same life experiences as me and they don't you know, look like me and their history isn't like mine and they can offer different perspectives. Um, So I think that's important, but I think it is so incredibly important to make these arguments just like impenetrable, (laughs) not in the sense that no one can read them because they're so (laughs) dense, but in the sense that, you know, that you do have the research and the, the numbers and the stats to um, build the argument. And I think that both of those things are important and that, you know, they both work toward these big idea books that I do. You know, I think that you can read a beautiful memoir that will teach you things about inequality and people's experiences in a way that a big idea won't. So that's not to say Mm -hmm. that personal narrative should ever be discounted because it's not packed full with stats. But I think when you're putting this big idea out there, you know, and the big idea that I had was talking about power, which is such a huge (laughs) thing, and power imbalances and structures and success and, you know, changing these ideas and what leadership looks like, um, that the, the book just isn't going to be successful in convincing anyone of anything unless you have concrete examples, um, to just support uh, the argument. So in terms of process, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that, um, that just looks like reading a lot <laughs> and, you know, and yeah. seeing and thinking about where the holes are and the things that I don't understand, you know, the things that, right. that I feel to be true, um, but that I want more than a feeling. And, you know, sometimes the things that I feel to be true the research doesn't support, you know, and you have to acknowledge that too. And you have to look at that too and interrogate, you know, why that is, which will just lead you down a whole other research path. And, you know, and sometimes you have to follow it. For sure. Yeah. The statistics thing I think is interesting. I've um, just in what you were saying there, I, I love statistics too. And I will spend days, weeks, whatever it takes to come up with numbers to back up what I'm trying to say. And I, you know, I realized in doing some of my own work that it was almost a defensive maneuver Mm -hmm. and it didn't read well, right? That, you know, you sort of pile a page full of percentages and figures and all this charts of whatever else you can come up with. And then you get the edits back and it says, cut this section out, (laughs) right? Because nobody can retain that kind of information. So I think that becomes a stylistic question too, uh, how do you convey those real numbers and that that hard information without losing people in the process? I think you know that it absolutely it can feel like a defensive mechanism, um, and I think that the choices that you have to make on the page are you know what to pare back, and you will have to inevitably pare back the information that you have, and the way that I often think about it is that, you know, I will always read and interview five to 10 more people or things, you know, that I need to, Mm -hmm. like just so much more. And I think that what you have to think about and what you have to maybe use when you're trying to make those decisions about what actually ends up on the page is that, you know, we have to realize as writers that we don't have to put everything that we know onto the page, but that it's still useful in the sense that it's helping to inform us what questions to ask. You know, it's helping to inform us to decide who we need to talk to. It's helping to inform us, you know, how we understand something. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, do that research, learn those things, learn those stats, read those studies, but think about how you're going to use it and how you're going to use it isn't always... (laughs) 
you know, putting an avalanche, an avalanche of information onto the page. Sometimes it means, okay, I'm going to use this one study, but now I know, you know, how that got there or why this is the best study or, you know, why this actually is true. And it's not just an anomaly. Right. You know, and I think that's, those are some of the things that we have to think of. You know, when I write my memoirs, I interview people (laughs) and do studies and, you know, I would never, I, those people don't make it onto the page. It's not like I do my memoir and then say, so-and-so said this about my experience, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, you know, I think that interviewing someone and, you know, seeing what about my experience is common, um, you know, what about my experience, um, does make sense through the lens of, you know, um, someone who's an expert in that field or who does do research in that field, um, helps you decide what to use, what not to use, um, how to approach, uh, communicating your own experience. So I think that, you know, it's the same thing with numbers. You have to think about, Mm -hmm. you know, what is going to help you. And usually, um, you know, a sandwich of numbers, no one wants to read that. (laughs) (laughs) So you pick the one that is the most powerful and just save the rest for your own knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sort of like uh, your arsenal, right? You can pull it out if you need to. Yes. Uh, yeah. At other times. Okay. So now you're working on a new project that maybe is challenging um, some of your past practices in terms of research. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, so I'm working on a book about uh, women's experiences during the pandemic or the first year of the pandemic, since it is definitely still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And um, it is more narrative focused, um, and I guess more narrative centered than um, the past two books that I've done, which have been real like big idea books, like here's this big idea, here's, um, you know, what it what it is, and what I think about it, and all that sort of stuff. This um, is more of a traditional sort of magazine style-ish, even though it's a book, (laughs) um, you know, approach in the sense that I am much more in the background of this book and uh, the people that I've spoken to and their experience are much more in the forefront. And I think, I mean, it's... (laughs) It's a, it's a bit of a relief, <laughs> to be honest, um, to, um, to, go, to go there and, you know, to go back to this true sort of narrative storytelling um, that I enjoy so much and, mm-hmm. you know, that I really, that sparked my interest in journalism in the first place. So I think that um, it's been amazing. Um, okay, let me ask you one big question that's maybe uh, unfair to ask. Um, but as a feminist writer, do you think you have an ultimate social or political goal that you're trying to reach? And, you know, if it changes all the time, that's fine, too. But I, I'm just wondering if, you're, if your impact, if you see it as being changing language and how we talk about uh, certain issues or is it developing new ways of thinking for a younger readership or are you aiming towards helping with policy change or just you know generally dismantling systems of power are, are, do you have like a big goal when you think about your arc uh, your the arc of your career as a writer I mean I think that one of my goals certainly is to it's tough because I think that, you know, it, the, the challenges seem so huge and so daunting um, that sometimes even as someone who writes about this, it's, it's kind of like, well, um, you know, knowing that you have, that these issues need to keep being highlighted. We need to keep putting um, people with new, ideas into the spotlight that we have to keep helping other writers also get their voice out there but also knowing that you know ultimately I don't think this will end you know I think it would be nice to have like a to be um in my 80s and you know not 
still write about power imbalances and structural mm-hmm. inequality and what that looks like. But I don't know. I mean, if I had like an ultimate dream goal, you know, that would be it would be to see things change. And, and we are, we are seeing things change, but you know, I think that it's so huge and the goals and, you know, and these systems took millennia to build. <laughs> it's going to take mm-hmm. a while to tear them down. <laughs> so I think, you know, for me, it's not even a goal for myself, but, you know, I hope that my writing is just one voice and, you know, it's a privileged voice at that, you know, I hope that I see more voices and that we do make room for more spaces. And, you know, I think when I look back at my career, you know, when I am 80, you know, it'd be nice to have seen some of the change, but I think that ultimately what I would like to see is that, you know, I'm just one of many voices and that there are, that there's more space and that there are more voices and that there are more people who feel that they can um, push for these things and that their stories also matter. And I think, you know, if, if that can happen, if me speaking out can help someone else feel like they can speak out, um, then that feels like a successful career to me. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I think one of the best letters I ever got was from a high school student who sent me her book report of my first um, of, of F-bomb. And she had found it and was like, this is incredible. And I want to be a writer. And now I think I can be a writer. And here's my book report on F-bomb. You know? oh my God. And, you know, I just like, you know, I loved it so much. And I think, you know, it's like those moments um, where you realize your work is connecting and who knows what she'll go on to do, you know, like she will go on to do incredible things too. So I think, you know, it's that chain reaction that I hope that I see and that that's how I think we'll start to change things. Okay, so you have some tips for us, and these relate to interviewing, and in particular, interviewing people on very difficult and perhaps personal uh, subjects. Um, So what can you tell our listeners if they're thinking about embarking on those kinds of projects? Yeah, well, what what I often get asked is how to interview people who don't like you. (laughs) so you know and 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 as part of that that obviously you know is a difficult question but or you know there will be difficult questions that happen there you know I do a lot of my work um you know I'm drawn to talking to people who don't agree with me um and to understand um you know where they're coming from Mm -hmm. uh and I think that you know I'm aware that not every journalist thinks this way And I totally understand the viewpoint that, you know, we shouldn't give these people with these dangerous ideas any air, (laughs) you know, that we shouldn't listen to Mm -hmm. them. Um, And I think, you know, I understand that. But for me, you know, I do think that a lot of the reason why these dangerous ideas, you know, have caught hold um, or do seem to be so popular you know, whether that's anti-feminism, whether that's, you know, racist ideas, whether anti-immigration, you know, all of that, I think part of the reason that they have been able to catch hold is that a lot of media didn't think they would, you know, we dismissed them and we didn't interrogate them and we didn't um, criticize them because we just didn't think it was going to catch the way that it did. And, you know, we found that we saw when, uh, you know, Trump, was elected a lot of people like how did that happen you know and for me Mm -hmm. someone who had been talking (laughs) to the other side and trying to uh interview them uh you know it wasn't as surprising unfortunately and probably for a lot of people who have been on the receiving end of you know racism and sexism also not that surprising right so you know to talk to those people is difficult and it's difficult not to um want to argue with them or you know just tell them why they're wrong Mm -hmm. and it's difficult to get them to agree to talk to you because if you google um me or someone else um you'll probably see you know it would like it's just feminism, <laughs> feminist on everything, you know, that I do. And certainly when you reach out to them, 
you know, a lot of people have come back to me and said, like, well, will you even interview me fairly um, because you're a feminist? So I think that the tips that I have there is to be honest and uh, to be open about your intentions and to be honest with yourself, too, about how fair you can be to them and how and why you do want to talk to them. You know, what you do want to know, what questions you do have, um, and if you do want to truly understand them. And, you know, I've had people tell me at dinner tables that I'm stupid, that, you know, they swear, they've sworn at me, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that you just have to um, be able to remember in those moments that, you know, they have their own agendas and mm-hmm. it's not really anything to do with you. And and to just stick to your guns a little bit, you know, I think I had one, I interviewed one anti-abortion activist um, who uh, told me that I was there on a mission from God. Hmm. You know, and I had to say, actually, my editor sent me, you know, like, <laughs> like sometimes it's okay just to say, like, no, you know, no, and, you know, maybe, you know, I don't agree with you. Um, but I, I am interested in hearing about what you have to say. And it's just um, being calm under that pressure. So, you know, that's, it's, it's tough, but I think, you know, it's just remembering that we're all human Mm-hmm. Um, and that they want to generally, a lot of people who have reprehensible ideas want to share them. Um, <laughs> and, and when I say, you know, to listen to them and to understand them, that doesn't mean not to challenge them. Um, but I think there's a difference between challenging someone's ideas and coming back to them with, you know, stats and figures that are to the contrary and, um, you know, devolving into an argument. Mm-hmm. And coming to them with empathy really is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's difficult. And I, and I understand that a lot of people, maybe a lot of these people maybe don't deserve our empathy, Mm -hmm. but I think that, you know, as journalists and as a society, um, we need to understand where these ideas are taking root and how they're spreading. Um, if we want to fight them. Yes. Any uh, practical tips along those lines? If you're going into an interview, you feel might be combative. I guess uh, meeting in parks is the uh, the place where we meet these days, or online. That helps. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that you know this seems very obvious, and you should always do this. But um, to have to know your stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you want to be able to come back with facts and figures if you, and just to be very prepared, you know, to have an idea of what they're going to say mm-hmm. um, and to have an idea of how you're going to counter it. And I think, you know, a lot of uh, people who don't agree with you um, or, or who may be controversial, you kind of have an idea of what they're going to say because you've heard them say it before, whether it's on their own YouTube channel, you know, whether it's on their own website, whether it's on social media, And you want to push them past that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do your research, have an idea of what you might hear in answer to your questions and, you know, have some idea of how you're going to come back um, to those those answers and how you're going to keep going. And I think that the other practical tip I have is don't be afraid to ask the same question in 10 different ways, mm. you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we kind of feel silly as journalists. We're like, well, they haven't answered it and they're not going to answer it. Ask a couple of other questions and then come right back to <laughs> right. it, you know, and ask it in a different way because um, they know they're dodging yeah. you. Um, so don't let them get away with it. And I think, you know, eventually people often just get so frustrated that they'll answer you Um, or um, you know, you'll, you'll know that they're like, you'll be able to write around that in a way where you know that you've kind of um, done your due diligence. And I think the other thing is to, if you have prepared that much and you kind of have an idea is to remain calm. And if you can, not look at your notes because I think a lot of people 
in my experience, who want to be combative, like the moment they sense that you're uncomfortable or that you might not be prepared, they're going to leap and mm-hmm. it's just going to go because, you know, they want to bring up that fight. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. And I think you'll get the best interview if you don't give it to them. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. Fantastic. I can't think of a better place to end than that. Uh, it's a, a wonderful goal to have and and just so nice to think about the possibilities of us all being connected through uh, your work and, and our work together as, as writers. So thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And I still feel like a fangirl, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Loren's new book, Women of the Pandemic, Stories from the Frontlines of COVID-19, will be out April 27th from Penguin Random House. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Lorraine McKeon for joining us. Further Reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten DePina and Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.